This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. As I said, though, Don Robertson is in. It's Monday evening. As he is every Monday, we bring Don in, owner and operator and managing director and senior partner and everything else of the Dundas Real McCoys. I don't know what other titles there are. Bill Payer. Bill Payer, yeah, that's that's the big one. And, uh, of course, uh, Comp Choice Realty as well in Dundas, man who has many tentacles stretching, I said tentacles, stretching throughout town. Thanks for coming in. Oh, happy to be here. You look brown as a berry. You know, usually I go from... Uh, Looks like you spent some time at the buffet table. I, well, I did too, yes. Uh, usually I go from white to boiled lobster. <laughs> but uh, I was careful this time. I, I tried to put on the SPF 200 and not, you know, not tempt a melanoma. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, beautiful weather. Anyway, uh, got back in time to see the Super Bowl, which was good. Um, when was it on? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of course, I picked up a cold on the plane, which is where you pick up colds. They're like a flying Petri dish. So it's like I, the hospital. It's full of sick people. So I watched uh, the Super Bowl flat in bed last night, coughing and shooting phlegm out and everything else. But uh, Nice. Fantastic game. People have, I mean, people have been talking about it all day. I'm sure people are very well familiar with everybody's view on it, which is basically one of the great Super Bowls ever, certainly one of the great comebacks in sports. And... Tom Brady is probably inarguably now locked up his spot as greatest quarterback of all time, maybe greatest football player of all time. The one, Don, the one thing that just clawed at me, though, that drove me nuts, and I was cheering for the Patriots, as it turns out. I'm not a Patriots fan, but I got to the point where I was thinking, you know, Tom Brady, you have to like Tom Brady at this point because he's just such a great player, and, and Bill Belichick, such a great coach. Anyway, the one thing that just ate at me, the overtime rules in the NFL may be almost as stupid as soccer's shootout rule, free kick rule. I mean, it. how is it that the Atlanta Falcons lost a Super Bowl without having a chance to touch the football? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's wrong. It's wrong. It doesn't make any sense. You, They have to get their shot, too. And if they don't perform, then they lose. That's what I don't understand. I, right. it, it, how much longer could it take to say, oh, the Patriots scored a touchdown, now you get a turn with the ball. And if you don't score a touchdown, it's over. How much longer could that take? Hockey, get it right. You shoot, I shoot. You shoot, I shoot. As soon as I got enough that you can't catch up, it's over. Well, the equivalent to this in hockey, and for anyone who doesn't understand what we're talking about, there probably can't be many, but just so in football, they flip a coin, the Patriots win the coin toss, so they say, we'll take the ball first. If you kick a field goal, the other team gets at least a turn to kick a field goal. But if you score a touchdown right off the bat, it's sudden death. It's over. So Atlanta never got a chance to touch the football. To me, that's like in hockey them saying, tell you what, you goalie can be on the ice. But the team that wins the coin toss, the other team's players aren't allowed to be on the ice for the first 30 seconds. And if you don't score, then they can come on. But if they score, the game is over. It, it just seems to me to be... It it takes a, a whole lot of the fairness out of the game. That Atlanta, Atlanta's back home now saying, wait a second, we never even got to try to match what New England did. Do you think the Atlanta talk sports talk shows aren't talking about revamping how overtime is done? As silly as it may seem in the regular season, you know what I mean? It's like, can you imagine that's how many times you ramp it up like a million times the focus in the Super Bowl. Now, in fairness, I, I, I don't know how to be fair, I guess, but 
in reality, it's never gone to overtime in a Super Bowl before, so it's never been to this magnitude. Not to this magnitude. There, is, there the, has been overtime in playoffs, just the not in the Super Bowl. seemingly unfairness of this. And I'm sure every losing team's owner brings it up saying, well, this is crap, right? And and, and they've chose not to. They're, they're not going to resolve it based on listening to us, I'm sure. But, I mean, there has to have been tremendous arguments about why this is fair, and the the uh, deep thinkers have said it is fair, but I can't. Un- it's a coin flip. I, what I don't understand is what the what the upside is to the NFL. What is the benefit to the NFL to say no? We will not give the other team the ball. What's the what's the benefit to them to do that? And I can't. And, and you would like to think that there's at least a thought behind. Okay, explain to me the rule. Make me understand, and if there's a reason why this makes sense, fine, I'll listen to it. But I, I've never heard the explanation for what the reason is, other than, well, we want the game to end within the block for TV that we've got. Not the Super Bowl at $5 million every 30 seconds. Or the playoffs, period. Holy crap, that's when they want I mean, they they take a three-minute break between God Bless America and their national anthem. Yep. Or America the Beautiful. I mean, they take a... They take a Six commercial breaks between the coin flip and the national. I mean, you know, the, these guys got it figured out how to stretch. You would think there's an easy time to be able to figure out how to stretch this thing out. It 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 would be very interesting to sit in a room with the decision makers and just sit back and listen to the rationale as to why they do it. I can't come up with one, and I, well, I tried. I spent a lot of today and a lot of last night trying to figure out. Okay, what would be the benefit? to the NFL saying, no, the other team doesn't get the ball. Well, in, in this instant, as it turns out, Atlanta didn't deserve to touch the ball. No. Well, at fair Atlanta. I don't think Atlanta would have marched down and scored a touchdown if they had got the ball. I don't think so. Not the way it was going. Momentum had just killed them. No, no, the Pats would have taken it away from them. Something would have happened. But if you have each touched the ball in overtime, then it can be sudden death. Because then at least you can't say we of never course. got a chance. You had a chance. You couldn't. Of you course. could never. That, that's far more fair. I mean, you could still make the argument that they had more <clears> chances. That the New England goes down and kicks a field goal. Atlanta go down and kick a field goal. You can still make an argument that if um, New England kicks another field goal, that Atlanta should have a chance to equal it up. Well, that's I mean, what they do in the CFL. Maybe it shouldn't be sudden death after they both touch the ball. In the spirit of fairness, uh, or you could say. You both touch the ball. The first guy to score a touchdown. These field goals are out. That would be an interesting way to do it. But they still have to be able to both get their hands on the ball. See, Atlanta couldn't play well in the third period because of the or the third quarter because the ball was too soft and they weren't familiar with. <laughs> don't hanging start that it. one again. Yeah, don't start that again. But That's no, what they did. They let the air out of the ball at halftime, and Brady was laughing. If the I could understand it. I mean, your idea of let them make them score a touchdown, make somebody score a touchdown. You can get into the player safety issue if a game starts going on for too, too long. You can you can talk about guys being exhausted and getting hurt, and I think that's a fair concern to have at that point, as it's the case in soccer. It's why they don't let soccer games go on until someone scores a goal, because you could go on for hours. Wow. And so, but it, to me, it just is, if I'm Atlanta right now, 
first of all, it's probably not. I, I, I would argue that it's probably not being talked about that much in Atlanta today, mostly because the discussion is around how the they, giant collapse. How they screw this up. Exactly. I don't. So if this had been a game that was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, yeah. it could have been anybody's game, this would be all the discussion in Atlanta today. But the fact is, I'm sure all the discussion is, how did we possibly blow this? I mean, it's almost impossible. It's like a marathon runner having a one-mile lead with 10 yards to go before the finish line and then fainting and letting the other person come by and catch them. I mean, it's just, it's it's almost inconceivable that they could have done this. Did they interview the Atlanta coach? Did he get the furball hacked out before he started to talk? I mean, he he offered many non-answer answers, which, and, and again, like if I'm him, I'm sure that in that moment, he didn't know what hit him. No. I'm sure he didn't. Re- if he had known what was going on and how they could have stopped it, they would have stopped it. I mean, honestly, I really believe the difference. And I don't want to get all into this because it's been done to death today everywhere. But I really believe that what's happened is Brady threw, what, 63 passes, dropbacks. The first half, Atlanta's pass rushers were getting to him. But you drop back and make them come at you hard going against a 350-pound guy 60-something times. You're going to get tired. I don't care who you are. You're going to get tired. And when they started to get tired and couldn't get pressure on him, Brady started to pick them apart. That's where the game changes. But that, again, goes to my other point. Should Matt Ryan not have had at least the opportunity? By the way, Matt Ryan, little little subtext here. Remember the Ticats had a quarterback a few years back named Quentin Porter? Yes. Didn't really pan out. He was the starter for a brief period of time. He was the backup to Matt Ryan at Boston College, Boston University. I can't one or the other. Anyway, um, Matt Ryan should have at least had the opportunity to get his hands on the ball and see what he could do. To me, it just strikes me as a gross unfit. It's no, it's almost as bad as soccer's free kicks, penalty kicks to decide a championship. We saw with the TFC playing against Seattle. It was equally as frustrating to me. Well, how do you, well, I was going to bring that up earlier when you talked about soccer and you talked about overtime, you talk about penalty kicks. Toronto FC lost to a team who never had a shot on goal during regulation. Noodle that around for a while and tell me how they can be champions. Well, there, see, now I have an, ex- I have an idea for, for soccer kicks, for, for soccer shootouts at the end. If the game is tied after the regulation, after the overtime in soccer, and you go to penalties, there's an easy way to solve that problem of a team like Seattle just hanging back for the penalties. You get one penalty kick for every shot on net you've had during the game. So if Seattle took no shots on net, they don't get a penalty kick. Toronto had 16 shots on net. They get 16. you got to score with one of those 16 to win. Well, you may as well just award it to uh, Toronto. That's fine. Most times you're not, you're not Because most times on you're that not theory, having... Seattle can't win because they'll never get a shot. That's right. Well, unless it was tied 0-0, then, then you got another, unless they stopped 16 consecutive shots, which would be a new universal record. But the point is, most games you don't have a team get zero shots. And it would force teams to at least try to come forward to take shots on net in soccer. It would force you, even if we're going to a shootout, we better get a few shots on net so we have some in the bank. Well, based on that theory, why don't you do this in football? The team that scored the most touchdowns gets the ball first. That would be a brilliant idea. That would be a brilliant idea. There you go. Write that down. No, I would because then all of a sudden it's like the three. It's like winning in regulation in hockey in the standings, as opposed to picking up all the the extra points for going into overtime. Give, I, it, give them three points. That the team that has the most touch, and then if they both have the same number of touchdowns, then you flip the coin. Yeah, that's a great idea. And 
it's amazing to me that we're sitting here for 15 minutes and you come up with an idea that makes that much sense and the NFL owners and whatever else have st- are still going by this old school ridiculous system that did, to be fair, as much as we can in this one, did get tweaked a few years ago because it used to be if you just kicked the first field goal, you won. Yeah. And so you could just... But if they can figure out that that's wrong... How can scoring the touchdown? But this again, Don, I don't understand. I don't. The, the the problem I have is that I can't see the upside. I just I can't see where the argument is for the current system. And I'm betting Roger Goodell isn't listening to this show. Well, you know what? He 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 has called in several times and That's says right. how much he loves it. Uh, we uh, he whenever he picks up the phone, we just boo loudly. I guess we found out everybody was talking about. Geez, he's not going to want to hand hand the Super Bowl to Bob Kraft, and he's not going to want to hand the uh, MVP to Brady. You know what? He's making twenty five million dollars a year. He more hand, than that. He'd hand it to Felix the Cat. He doesn't care. Uh, you know what? I, I was talking with Bill Kelly earlier this morning on the air, and I asked Bill this question. We were chatting, and I said, I thought, I always thought that Gary Bettman was the most hated commissioner in sports. And yesterday, the, the TV boom mics picked up Roger Goodell handing the trophy to Robert Kraft. You could hear them talking, but apparently, if you go online, people who were in the stadium, you could not hear a word Roger Goodell was saying because the booing was so loud. It drowned him out. One thousand percent, and I now say I, I now believe that Gary Bettman is the second most hated commissioner, and it's not even a close fight anymore. Roger Goodell is if he if he set foot in Boston, his life would be in jeopardy. I'm not kidding. I really believe that he he is not going to go there because it's a dangerous place for him. Did Bill Kelly do his show from Boston today? I assume he would have drove straight down. No, well he did it from the tattoo parlor where he was getting the tattoo of the Patriots logo on his butt cheek. Um, you don't know that about Bill. Bill is a man of uh, of many championship tattoos on various parts of his body. Well, but, the Bruins uh, is somewhere. The Bruins, yeah, the Red Sox. He's running out of body parts. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We were talking about Tom Brady a moment ago. Who would you, in any sport, and I know it's a difficult comparison to make because we're talking apples and oranges, but in, it take, you can take the world sports. You can go basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, football, whatever. One athlete, game, championship on the line. Who's the guy you want on your team? Who In, in any sport, who's the, the most clutch, most outstanding guy that you would want to have playing for you? Michael Jordan. Yeah? I think so. It's, you know, when you talk about legends of the game, and I, I don't know what we're going to talk about next, but... I remember when um, Gretzky and Jordan and Joe Montana were on the front of sports and the premier guys. And at that time, Joe Montana was the best quarterback ever. And I think you have to try and put all that into perspective. We've done that before here, who changes the game and everything else. But there's always a legendary quarterback that is the best ever. And I think it changed, changes from one generation to another. Now, Brady's got a lot of Super Bowls, so that was going to be a tough argument to shake. But to answer your question, I think Jordan was able to lift his team and in the clutch moment make the shot that was necessary. It's an interesting discussion, and and I I don't think there's necessarily a wrong answer. There's no right or wrong. In basketball, I think there's probably two or three guys in basketball at least that you could put there. I think Magic Johnson goes into that mix. Larry Bird. Bird wasn't bad, yeah. Uh, In football, as you say, you've got Montana, you've got... 
uh, Terry Tom Bradshaw Brady. You've got Terry bad. Bradshaw, who's in that mix. One of the Manning boys is all right. You go to uh, you go to the hockey, and you could say Gretzky. You could say Orr. Uh, in soccer, there's there's several in soccer. I mean, you could have Pele, you could have Maradona that would both be in that category. Yeah. We're talking team sports primarily. I don't think we can go into the tennises and the golfs and things like that because that's, you know, it's not really... Well, nobody else is counting on them to right. win except them. That's right. You know where the hardest one is, perhaps? The hardest sport to talk about this, I think, is baseball. I can't think of who the guy is in baseball history even. I mean, you could say Babe Ruth, I know, but who has that kind of impact on the team that those guys have had. It doesn't stand out. Baseball, to me, is so much more of a difficult sport to be that person. And you, you can talk about clutch pitchers that yeah, you'd want to hand the ball to. And But is there a clutch pitcher that you would say, Mar- Mar- Mariano Rivera, maybe, Jack but as Morris. a closer? Even so, I don't but think he, any but, of them fall into the, into the Tom Brady or the Wayne Gretzky or the well, and, and maybe that category, Michael Jordan. As you as you talk, and I seldom listen when you talk. Um, I start I start thinking, how often is a baseball player put in the unique position to end the game or to be that dominant? Starting pitcher isn't right. No, and, um, and batters, you can, it's 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 luck in a lot of sense if you happen to you be could, that guy. Cause you you could have to argue, come, argue Reggie Jackson, but the fourth guy in the lineup may get a couple opportunities during the game with the bases loaded. That's true. But Joe you Carter, can't set it up. You can't set it up so no. your best hitter is always the last guy up to bat to save the game. But baseball players get so few opportunities to do it. I think that's what makes it more difficult. That throw that Brady made to put them within uh, 10 points – you know, in, in the end zone, he threw that ball, and you couldn't defend against it. He threw it where there wasn't anybody except his receiver was heading there, and he dove and caught it. That is indefensible. You can't stop that, and that's greatness, right? But you tell me how many opportunities a baseball player has ever had to make that throw or make that catch that you can't defend against. Maybe a relieving pitcher, right? Well, Maybe. Again, think of for a baseball position player, Yes, you can have an impact at bat, but it's, there's a, there's an element of luck involved in where you come up in the batting order, whether how impactful you can be in that per, in that particular moment. Well, that's what I meant about the guy yep. hitting fourth, but maybe also, twice a game, maybe. But then your other part is you're a position player, you're in the field, but you can only do yeah. what the game comes to you. You can be the best right fielder in baseball and not have a play all game. One pot fly. In foul territory. And so, yeah. You, you, the, you have that the biggest may, rifle in the game. And you may be completely irrelevant to that yeah. game. That's what I mean. So baseball, it's so difficult to find those defining opportunities on a fairly regular basis. Like Jordan, that that, that I pick for basketball, I mean, off the top of my, you know, maybe the best ever, so it's an easy pick. I'm not that brilliant to do it. But they're giving him the ball when they want that last second shot taken nine times out of ten. And he was so good, they could double guard him, and they'd still get him the ball, and he'd still make a shot. Well, all the guys you talked about, all the guys we talked about, yeah. football, they're yeah. all quarterbacks pretty much that you put into that category who have the ball. With hockey, it was Gretzky and Orr who have the puck, and they're double shifted, and they're staying on the ice a lot. And, and again, with, um, with basketball, it's the, with the guys you give it to. I, I would have to go with Wayne Gretzky, I'll be honest, and I, I know that's a Canadian thing, I know it's a hockey thing, but when... when Maybe it's because I was old enough to watch Ma- Michael Jordan, but I was old enough still to watch Wayne Gretzky when he was playing. And when he was at his best, 
there was nobody else in the NHL that was close to being as frightening to the other team. No, not even nobody close. When it's he came because on the he ice, made everybody else better, and that's what I use as the argument when we talked about what's the best player ever that changed. It. He made everybody around him. Samanko scored twenty two. And when you when he was on the ice, if you were the other team, you were perpetually yeah. fearful that there was a goal that was about to be scored on you. And if it wasn't, it was an exhausting shift because you had to defend so much harder because you knew that something was going to happen. If if you were a defenseman on the defending team that Gretzky was out against, you weren't sure he wasn't going to put it in off you. And here's the other one. Right. We go to Tom, yeah, and we go to Tom Brady. And what I said earlier, I really believe that where this game turned was Atlanta having to pressure Tom Brady the whole game and wearing themselves out. And those 400-pounders got tired going, geez, I need a Snickers. <laughs> but when th- that's the effect that Tom Brady had, though. They knew they had to get to him. And they knew that when they got to him and hurried him up that he wasn't as good. But as soon as they couldn't get to him, he started to pick them apart. And you realize how impactful. He wasn't then just impactful because he was a good quarterback. He changed the entire game because they had to play a different style to deal with him. Do you know what I think else happened in, in watching the game? Is his receivers and his team knew that he would continue to get better and he would be good enough to give them a chance. So they likely never let down. Yeah. Like I watched that white on CNN this morning, and he said he was great in the huddle. Like, you know, he was he was just the way he handles the huddle and the way he talks to us and, and you know, you do this on this road because they're not expecting that. He'd change it right in the huddle, and the ball would be there. I mean, it was – so they all believed in him so much. Well, because, I mean, honestly, Tom Brady – No evidence not to. And Tom Brady's relaxed. He figures, okay, we lose this game. I still go home to Giselle, to my $50 million mansion, to my $20 million a year, plus what she makes, plus endorsements. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm joking. He wanted to win. But, sure he, but he, it is a, he is a guy who clearly has been there enough to not panic. Well, he wasn't under enormous pressure to have to win like Jim Kelly was in his third straight oh, loss for the fourth, Bills. Yeah, no, that for sure. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Don Robertson sticks with me for another few minutes here in studio. Um, Don, really interesting story came out today from Sports Business Journal down in the States about TV ratings for NHL hockey in the United States, leaving out the seven Canadian teams. We're not going to talk about them. What do you think, based on, and this is based on... uh, Ratings points. So not necessarily volume of viewers, but percentage of the local market that is watching a game at any one time. So, I mean, obviously some cities are bigger than others. But based on your ratings, what do you think is the best hockey city in the United States? And it's an NHL city. These are all NHL cities watching their team's games. What do you think is the top city? Minnesota. Minnesota was the, is... The fifth, sorry, the fourth. L.A. LA would have been another pick, but you only gave me one. L.A. is a knot in the top five or the bottom five. The Minnesota Wild have, have, are at a 3.91 share, which is not bad. They're up 23% this year over last year. Getting Bruce, a big, big increase because of their, their team's doing well. Bruce Boudreaux. Number five on the list was the Chicago Blackhawks, the one below Minnesota. They're down 20% this year. They're still fifth. Number three 
which shocked me a little bit because a I always forget for some reason I always forget this team is even in the NHL. It's the one team that just doesn't seem to exist in my brain. That's the St. Louis Blues. For whatever reason, St. Louis to me doesn't count. They just they don't even the I, you pl- never even think of them. They're they're they just they're there. The Plager brothers. Yeah, but you know Scotty Bowman. I know. I don't know. Glenn Hall, all these guys, but they just, they're that team that just doesn't seem to really exist until you mention them. You go, oh, yeah, they're still around. Uh, they're third. Pittsburgh, 5.56. Oh, by the way, Blues are up 22% this year. The Pittsburgh Penguins are up 2% this year. They're at 5.56%, which is a nice rating for their games. Number one team, shocker to me, because my, my initial thought was Pittsburgh, uh, sorry, was Philadelphia, maybe, Boston. Maybe. Detroit. Maybe. Buffalo Sabres. Number one hockey market in the United States. Buffalo Sabres. 6.43. And they're down 5% this year. 6.43, but the market is one of the but again, very smallest. I understand that. But again, the, the rating is based on a percentage of the market, not on the number of people. But yep. the highest percentage of people in Buffalo are watching the Sabres play more than any other market in the United States. I'm shocked by that. It says an awful lot to me when you look at this. It says an awful lot when we go back and look at all those times Hamilton has tried to get a team and we sort of just poo-poo. We always say it's the Leafs' fault and we poo-poo the Sabres. Yep. There is more to the Sabres than we give credit for. And they're down dramatically. And they're Well, not dramatically. They're down 5%. But still, the, but the team is bad right now. Imagine if the team ever What are they good. at now? 6.43%. But if they imagine if, if oh they're, they're not do- down five percent they weren't at eleven five no 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 not not, not five okay. like that so yeah. they would have been at six so point like seven five or something yeah. like that but no and imagine if the Sabers get good they are they are the top U S TV draw for a team with a crappy team when you get back to the days when they have a that's team why that's st- competitive that's why stats are funny they may have the fewest viewers could be but it's the highest percentage of the market now the worst the bottom six. This to me is, this to me, you know, we've heard a lot in recent years about the Gary Bettman Sunshine teams and how he's yep. built the Sun Belt and all this. It seems to me when you look at this that a lot of those teams may be built on a foundation of sand. because Smoke and mirrors. Not all of them, but the six, they have six bottom teams here because two of them are tied. Tied for fifth lowest, the Devils and the Dallas Stars. New Jersey Devils, don't surprise me, don't shock me, because they're kind of the forgotten team a lot in New York City. But the Dallas Stars have been always touted as one of the great successes in the Sun Belt. They've built up minor hockey in Dallas. America's team. 0.41%. Wow. Less than half a percent for both of those. That's nobody. Nobody's watching. Uh, Then the Devils are up this year by 58%. 58%. And the Stars are down 33%. Third, I'm oh, sorry, fourth worst, Arizona Coyotes. They are at 0.4%. The New York Islanders are at 029 They are at minus, they're down 31% this year. Florida Panthers, 0.27. They're up 35% and they're at a 027 So there's basically nobody watching this team except those who are in the arena. And the worst team, the Anaheim Ducks, who are at a point two one, they are drawing a fifth of a percent 
of TV viewers for their games in their home market. That's down 46%. They're having an okay year. Funny, I, I'll bet you there's still more people watching than in Buffalo. But I, I get I get the draft. Stars, Coyotes, Panthers, Ducks, four Sunbelt teams, all with almost nobody watching. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and think that the ratings in Hamilton might be higher. Gary Bettman doesn't care. The owners are happy. Yeah, you know what? It's... Uh Again, I look at this and I think we keep hearing about the success and how we've planted this footprint in the South. But when you look at those numbers. It does seem to be in quicksand. Those are numbers that basically are almost zeros. How do you make money if you can't get a a proper TV deal and if there's nobody watching and nobody paying attention except the people in the arena? That becomes a very, very little margin for error situation. Because if the only people who are really interested are the eighteen to 19,000 who are in the barn and they decide for whatever reason the team is not that entertaining and they're not going to go, you've got real problems now. The ratings are probably higher when they're, on, when they're on the road. Oh, I'm sure. Because everybody that cares is at the game. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely sure. Yeah, interestingly, the, uh, Colorado, the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets this year, their uh, improvement, because here's the teams that are up, they're improving. They're up 110% in the ratings this year. 110%, up to a 1.97. They were not doing very well before. Uh, the other, And uh, the biggest loss for this year, the, uh, uh, who's the worst? Colorado Avalanche have dropped 57% of their viewership because they're that bad. Interesting, though. Buffalo, hottest, best on relative merit, best hockey market in the States. Never would have guessed that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So earlier today, hundreds of healthcare workers held a rally outside Hamilton General Hospital to demand higher provincial funding for the medical system, which is a good idea, right? We want a good medical system. We want a hospital system that functions well, that has beds for us, that has doctors, that has equipment. We want all that stuff. That's a good thing. Well, the other day, a you probably read it in the paper, a senior citizen in town was brutally attacked at St. Joseph's Villa by another patient who I believe had Alzheimer's, and there were demands to make sure this doesn't happen again. And by demands, probably, in order to make that a reality, that would mean more staffing and maybe other security measures, but that would mean more money. But of course, we don't want something like that to happen again, so that's a good thing. We need more funding for senior care, for elder care. We want that. That's a good thing. Well, last week, it was the Ontario colleges demanding more cash from the provincial government. They are saying they are on their way at the current way they're heading towards a $2 billion deficit by the year 2025. And we don't want that. We want good colleges. We want our students, our kids to come out of school well-prepared and educated. So it's a good idea to give more money to colleges. And universities, too. Don't forget, they want a piece of this. They're not being quiet. Universities want more money. And it was a couple weeks ago, you'll recall, we talked about it on this show, that Sam Hammond, the teachers' union head, was demanding an increase in funding for special needs students and children's mental health, which, again, good things. Nobody's arguing that these aren't good things. We want our kids to be safe in school. We want the kids who have problems to be helped. All good things. But you add that to the demands for transit money, more social services funding, more infrastructure money, and so on and so on and so on. 
Well, how do we possibly deal with all these things? How do we possibly handle all these demands? Or even if they were just requests, but they are demands, how do we respond to all this? Well, Aaron Woodrick is the president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, he joins me now. Aaron, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. So I go through all these things, and I know that you're not going to dispute that these are all really good things that we want to have in our society, right? Education and health care and schools and all. Those are all good things, right? Oh, of course, of course. And that's exactly part of the challenge there, Scott, is that, you know, no one would deny who wants to, who, who thinks that we shouldn't have well-funded schools. I mean, that's a very hard argument to make politically, and I think most of us agree that uh, these are important things. But the real challenge comes in is that we have a limited amount of money. Even if you are a group not like ours, I mean, we're a group that likes low taxes, but even if you like them higher, you still have a fixed amount of money at the end, right? So you have to decide what's the highest priority for these things. What's the most important use for this money? And I think the, we get into problems when you have governments, frankly, like the one we have in Ontario right now, uh, where they have what we call mission creep. They want to do everything. They want to spend on everything. That leaves not enough money to go around for the important things. And then you have what you just described, which is groups calling for more money for their own particular area. And, and yeah, it's exactly. We have too many good things that we want to do, but we don't, I don't see, maybe someone else wants to call in and tell me otherwise or send me an email, radley at 900chml.com if you want. But I don't see, as you describe it, the priorities. I just see, let's throw money at everything. And then we don't, as you say, we don't seem to have, we don't, not we don't see, we don't have the money to do everything. Well, yeah, and you know, in, in Ontario in particular, uh, the two big things, the two big budget items are health care and education. I mean, combined, Scott, those eat up about two-thirds of all of government spending. Huh. That's, that's, that's substantial. Um, and so you, you have to start asking, you know, what else is the government trying to do? This government's been in power a long time. Uh, I think most people, uh, even who don't follow politics very closely, are familiar with some of the waste situations, the gas plants, e-health, uh, the Green Energy Act, which has led to billions, consumers paying billions. I mean, these are examples of money that could have been put to a better use and that they aren't. And I think that's why a lot of Ontarians get frustrated when they say, why should I pay higher taxes? You know, I've or- I'm already paying a lot of tax, and I don't even feel I'm getting good value for the tax that I'm already paying. Aaron, how did we get here, though? I mean, is it entirely just a product of waste? It can't, it can't entirely be that. There has to have been other things that led to these high taxes and not seemingly a lot to show for it. No, you're right. It's not just waste. I mean, even if there was no waste, uh, I mean, part of it is just human nature. We have infinite wants, um, but only so many resources to go around, right? Uh, it, it's the same most of us experience in our household. We'd all like to have a few more things in our house, but we only have a certain household budget. The difference with governments, though, uh, unlike most of us, is they can really just sort of borrow as much as they want. Uh, you or I can't do that. We run up against a credit line or credit cards get maxed out. Governments just keep going back for more and more. And I think that's where the danger lies, as we start to pile up this debt over time, because it's not right in front of you, we think it's not a big deal. It is. Uh, in Ontario, we spend more than a billion dollars a month just on interest payments, just on interest payments on our debt. That's money we could use for any one of these other good causes. So does that suggest that we are too reliant on government? Well, I think, uh, I, I think there is a default with a lot of people who believe that if there is a problem out there, government should be the one to solve it. And I think we need to be careful about that. Government's important. I don't think there are many of us who think there shouldn't be government. But is government always best place to fix every problem? Uh, I'm not sure that's the case. And when we get into that mindset where, oh, there's a problem, better get government on it, uh, I, I'm, I think we start to run into problems because our resources start to get stretched. Well, 
you know, it's not, I'm not the first one to mention this, but there's been a lot of talk in recent years, uh, just even recently with Ontario college executives, that there's a lot of money spent on salaries alone, that, that, that the public sector, uh, for what it does, gets paid very handsomely. And, and this is, you know, we may have been too generous with salaries in government. We may have capitulated to unions a little too easily, public sector unions, to give them what they want, and now we're in a pickle. Yeah, and you know, look, public sector unions, uh, their union leadership is doing what they're supposed to do, right? They're supposed to fight for their members, and and I don't begrudge them that. But politicians have to remember they're supposed to negotiate for everyone else, right? It shouldn't be a negotiating at the table where it's the union leader and the union sort of, or the government sort of half on the union side, and then, you know, taxpayers only have half an advocate at the table. That becomes a problem over the long run because, again, you have governments, uh, you know, wanting to make peace with unions at a very high price. So if every if every one of these groups then argues that society is going to crumble, or at least it seems to be, without you giving us more, if you don't give us more, transit is going to be a disaster, and healthcare is going to fall apart, and the colleges are going to go so deep in tr- deficit and debt we can't keep up with this, what do we do? Everybody seems to say now, Aaron, that we need the money, or the life you know is going to not exist. How do we deal with that? Well, I mean, part of it is calling it for what it is, Scott. Some of it is hyperbole. I mean, sure, uh, you, you know, most people would prefer to get more money, but can they make do with less? In many cases, they can. Uh, not every government agrees to give more money to groups that ask for it, and the sky doesn't fall. So, but, you know, you, but if you say, Aaron, I mean, let me play devil's advocate yeah. for a second. If you say, you know what, Aaron, you are running the health system, you must do more with less, you know what? By saying that, I want you. I want people to die because that'll be the immediate comment. Well, you, you're going to be okay with people dying. Then the, their blood will be on your hands. Well, we hear that stuff all the time. Yeah, you know, you're right. I, I think one thing to point out is that uh, there's not always a straight line between more men, more money, and better quality. You know, obviously, you need a certain amount of money, but uh, it's ex- exactly the same reason you see a lot of private sector organizations. Uh, they're more efficient, they have better customer service, and they do it at a lower cost than government does. If it was just purely about spending more money, I mean, we would have, for example, one of the, the, the best education systems in the world. We don't. We're in the middle of the pack. And so, you know, you, you start to ask questions, and healthcare. I mean, it's a very taboo issue. Perhaps it's time that we look at, for example, some more private sector involvement in healthcare. care. <gasps> um, I mean, oh, you I, took my I, breath I, away, Aaron. You can't say that. That would be a two-tier system almost. Well, this is this is the, this is the crazy thing, right? I mean, you look at uh, you look at um, so many countries around the world, Scandinavian countries, Switzerland, France, Japan. They all have mixed public-private systems. Um, the sky hasn't fallen there. It's not some dystopian wasteland. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, you mention that here, and a lot of people who don't want to talk about it, they simply point to the United States, which is frankly the other extreme end of the spectrum. There's all kinds of other countries in the middle that we could talk about that we might be able to learn some lessons from. It's a great word you use, though, which is taboo. There do seem to be some subjects that we absolutely, adamantly refuse to even entertain, regardless of whether or not we might be able to do better. Well, you're right. And, and uh, you know, when it comes to health care in particular, I think most of us would agree it's important that everybody have health care. And, uh, you know, as long as you aren't paying cash up front, if, as long as you can use your health card to get, uh, you know, health care services, do you really care if the hospital, for example, is run by a private sector company or the government? As long as you are paying with your health card and not with your credit card, does it really make a difference to you?
Okay, so let's go through some of the possibilities for how we deal with this. I mean, the first one, obviously, is to prioritize, but we've already seen that most governments don't really want to do that because that means some people are going to be very upset and they're voters, and so that's a that's a kiss of death for governments. They hate doing that kind of stuff. So the next option would be, okay, we can just gouge all the programs, tell everybody they have to cut back. Well, they don't like doing that either. No, they don't, and you know that can be a that can be a sort of uh, you know simplistic way to to cut things in very dire situations. You know, situations like you saw in Greece, you don't really have much choice. You kind of have to cut everything. We're not there. I don't want to suggest Ontario is at that stage yet, but I can tell you, if we continue on the trajectory we're on for maybe another decade or two, we could start to get into a very serious situation. And I, I don't think enough people appreciate. Sometimes it's better to have a like slight reduction now rather than having to have some massive cut all at once of like 30 or 40 percent of a budget. There would be others who would say, you know what, um, just increase our taxes significantly more. I know your group would not be in favor of that, but what about that idea? Look, we everybody wants a little more, so we got to pay a little more. Let's have a 10, 12, 15 percent increase in our taxes. Sure, you know, and I, look, I appreciate the uh, the appeal of saying, look, the money's there, we rich people have the money, why don't we just grab it? The problem is you can only pull that trick off so many times, right? I mean, uh, rich people, are, are uh, they tend to have the means to move their money around, uh, they might move their investments out, they might leave Ontario. And, you know, frankly, I think it's better to have more rich people in the province paying some tax rather than none of them, because they've all left, paying no tax at all. Well, and and also, is it not the case, and maybe I'm wrong, but that the perception that if we were to gouge the rich people, it still doesn't actually add up to that much money in the grand scheme of things, because there's not that many of them that are the ultra, ultra, super rich that it would cover all that many costs. Well, you're absolutely right. That's the thing. At the end of the day, uh, you know, very rich people are quite scarce. There's just not that many of them. So, you know, you might be able to scoop a few extra million dollars, uh, but you're not talking billions and billions. In a province like Ontario, that's the kind of money you need if you really want to, uh, if you really want to expand size of government. Okay, so what is the answer then? We've got all these groups that need, they say, I'm using the word need, that need extra funding. We need to have more money in order to make our society operate the way it has for the last number of years. What is the answer? No, there is no easy answer. Uh, you know, if there was, I'm sure governments would provide it. Uh, they have to make choices. They have to tell some groups no, uh, and and tell you know some groups will come higher on that pecking order than others. Some will get what they want, and you know uh, certain there are certain causes and certain portfolios which you know the vast majority of people would say yeah you know what that's that's top of the list. But others, um, it's simply a matter of it's not that we don't like you. It's just that uh, there's nothing left in the cupboard at this point. Are, do you know of any governments right now in Canada, provincial or federal, that would say that, though, at the risk of losing votes? I don't well, see my, that. I don't see too many governments that would say that, that would take a stand and make a, a decision based on importance. Yeah, no, uh, not very many, and it is rare. You know, there were there there have been uh, politicians, you know, throughout history. Mike Harris, for example, in Ontario, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but, you know, he did uh, he did say no. Uh, to, to some people who ask for more money. And so it just shows it can be done. Um, it, it does take, you know, some political uh, risk. But, you know, Mr. Harris did in his first term. He was reelected to a second majority with the, even more vote than he, than he got the first time. It does seem like it's one of those things that a government is almost has to be willing to be sacrificial. It, it, like, we're willing to, to do this and hope that it works. Because we know that if it doesn't work, it's gonna look, we're going to go out in a blaze of glory in the first term that you have to be willing almost to throw yourself on the sword and say, 
we believe this will work and it'll help, but people eventually, you know, there's a chance that this might not and we could go down. No, you're right. And it, it does involve a risk. A lot of politicians are risk averse, right? The name of the game in politics is get elected and stay there. Yes. And so they will often sort of abandon positions. This is why you see a lot of cynicism today uh, in, in politics. And frankly, I think it's one of the reasons we've seen developments like the Brexit vote, like Donald Trump. So many people are so disillusioned with politics as business as usual. They're willing to try, you know, something quite dramatically different just because it's different, because they figure, you know what, doesn't matter. All these guys are the same. I'm going to go with the with the option or the person that's so out there uh, that I've really got nothing to lose at this point. It's a really it's an interesting thing you draw there with Donald Trump because you get the sense sometimes, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of U.S. politics right now, but that there is a sense people are willing to say almost, or at least the voters were in the states. We'll put him in for a term to try and change things, and we may bring back someone we like a lot more, but we'll let him do the dirty work for four years and then go back to our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, it is. I mean, I I, uh, I just I think that it takes a very unique sort of environment for a candidate like Mr. Trump to succeed. Um, and apparently, the stars lined up for him. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people people were willing to uh, take a flyer on some of the things he said. And I don't think there's any denying. Even his supporters would say some of the things he said are quite out there. Um, and yet, people went for it anyway because they they've just seen a parade of politicians promising the same old thing over and over. Aaron, last thing: Do you believe when these people? in our province, the heads of the unions or the organizations or the agencies, when they line up and make these demands for more funding, they're, well, all of them are in the public sector. Do you believe they understand how difficult it is and how dire it is with the funding in this province, or are they separated from that because of how they've been treated in the past and don't really have a good grasp on how bad the finances are? They don't really believe it. You know, I think privately some of them would probably concede the point, but I think publicly they have a job to do, right? From their point of view, they're representing uh, a number of public sector workers. Their job is to get the biggest piece of the pie um, available. They're not concerned about the big picture, um, and, and that's unfortunate because it leads to a situation where everyone's demanding more without, uh, without the regard to how much there is actually available. It's a, uh, it's a head-scratcher because this is not going away. We're going to have uh, this ongoing even though we don't have any money. And as you say, uh, there is no real answer for this. There's no simple answer anyway. Uh, Aaron Woodrick, the president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I want to hold them like they do in Texas, please. Did you watch the halftime show yesterday at the Super Bowl? She was singing. That's Lady Gaga singing, if you didn't know that. I thought Lisa, Lisa's filling in for Luke this week. Lisa would... Okay, I'm going to be sexist here, but Lisa seems to me that she would be right in the wheelhouse for who the Super Bowl organizers were going after with this one. What did you think of her performance? Oh, I thought it was really amazing. I was working and I had it on silent, but I watched it on YouTube afterwards. I can't believe she could sing like that and do all those flips and everything. Yeah, you know what? I I thought she was good. I'm not a Lady Gaga fan, and I'm certainly not in the... Air, you know, the age group or the even the gender group, probably that she that they would she'd be marketing towards. But I thought she was good. I thought it was a good halftime show. Not everybody did. And the thing about it is, 
Very few people who were critical of the performance were critical of the performance. What they were critical of was what she didn't do, which was, well, let me read you some of the criticisms. This one was from Michael Wood of the Los Angeles Times. This story was actually reprinted in today's Spectator, which a lot of people responded to. Lady Gaga missed her Super Bowl moment to say something profound, he complained. The 30-year-old singer offered up a disappointing 12-minute medley that lacked any edge or tension. You wish she'd taken in more of what was going on offstage. In other words, she didn't say anything political. She didn't take a chance, an opportunity to use her platform to make a political statement. Chris Richards, The Washington Post. Lady Gaga calls herself a rebel, but at the Super Bowl, she played it safe. And then went on to talk about how Beyonce last year when she did her Black Panther routine, that was really, oh, that was awesome because it was very political. Uh, Pyatt Levy of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Gaga's overwrought performance overshadowed a potentially meaningful moment. Variety, New York Daily News, Newsday all used the word safe. She played it safe. She didn't take a chance, take an opportunity to turn her halftime performance into a giant political statement against what was going on in the United States. But is that really, when people tune into a Super Bowl or a halftime show, is that really what people want? That's my question. I don't. I, I, I didn't, but apparently I may be in the minority. Well, Chris Zelkovich writes for Yahoo Sports. He's a media writer, a media critic. Uh, he joins us now. It's been a while, Chris, but we're glad to have you back. Thanks for doing this. Always uh, always happy to be here. Guys. So um, what do you take of all these critics? Are they bang on? Did she miss a glorious opportunity to turn halftime into a political rally? Or are we relieved and thankful that she excised politics for the most part, minus a few very subtle references you may or may not have picked up on, and basically let us just enjoy a halftime show free of all the chaos? Well, I mean, let me preface this by saying that probably nothing would have thrilled me more than to see her get up there and do something to roast Donald Trump and his legion of of uh, mouth breathers. But but that said, I mean, it's a football game. Um, uh, when 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 did the Super Bowl become a platform for political statements? <laughs> I mean, I I'm, I'm a little mystified by all this criticism because in my memory, I think. Beyonce's uh, performance last year was the first that actually attempted to make a political statement. Um, you know, it's uh, you know you, you don't want to go back to uh, up with people, but <laughs> you know these are Carol Channing. And yeah. I, I mean, I just you know I, I don't quite get the expectation that somebody would seize the moment to uh, to make a political statement. It uh, it just seems weird to me, and I'm, I'm amazed that that many people think that it, that it is. Well, the interesting thing to me is, Chris, that the, all, these, all these people who are writing that she missed an opportunity to make a political statement are operating on the assumption that if she had made a political statement, and I think it's a fair assumption, but nonetheless, if she had made a political statement, it would have been to bash mm. President Trump. Yeah. But what if she'd been political and praised Donald Trump somehow? Would they have then said, great thing that she took the opportunity to be political, or would they have said, well, she ruined the Super Bowl? Well, exactly. I and, mean, you know, and you know, what if Ted Nugent had come out yes. uh, you know, as a guest? And, and you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't quite understand it. It just seems out of place to me. And like I say, I'm, uh, I'm no fan of what's going on down in the U.S., but uh, I just, you know, I, I, I don't care. I mean, it's, it's not what this is about. Uh, I mean, why didn't uh, uh, Tom Brady seize the moment uh, 
when he won the uh, <clears throat> Super Bowl to uh, make a statement promoting Donald Trump, since that's the way he feels. Well, and, I mean, it's just, you know. And Chris, I heard nobody after the game saying, why didn't he do that? He really yeah. missed an opportunity. Well, exactly. But, you know, even if he was a, a Tom, uh, Donald Trump critic, what, what, that's just not the place, you know. It's like, it's like one of those guys, uh, you know, they, they get the most outstanding player award, and the first thing they do is give you a, a two-minute dissertation on how the Lord has made the, all of this possible. It's like, come on, <laughs> it's a football game. Let's, let's stick to the subject. So I, I guess my question then becomes, clearly all the critics, again, are making the point that they wanted a political statement of a political persuasion that would yes. take a political viewpoint. Right. Which seems to me then that it's a dishonest criticism of what she's doing, because if she had gone the other way, again, Tom Brady got lashed all week by the media leading up to it, because not because he said anything specific, just because he happens to be friends with Donald Trump. And and actually refused to say anything specific, Uh, which in my opinion, again, no fan of, of Donald Trump, but... If if that's his that's his opinion that's his opinion and he decides to keep it to himself well good for him. Yeah, you know and the other thing is and I got to give Lady Gaga a little bit of credit for this because I I don't think even though she is definitely in the weird category uh, she's also I think a very intelligent woman uh, and I look at the fact that she announces her world tour today and what would be the point of getting up on that stage knowing that all of the United States or certainly all factions of the United States are watching, and half of the people disagree with that political point that the critics want her to say. She would be cutting off half of her audience who would be ticked off and say, no, I'm not going to go to her concert. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, again, there's a time and place for this. Uh, You know, if at her concert she wants to get up and and make those statements, I I think that's fine. But, you know, before 100 million people uh, in the middle of a football game, it just doesn't seem certainly doesn't seem like it's anything that's mandatory. I mean, is that what we're expecting now, is that everybody who does the halftime show is going to get up and make a political statement of some sort? I I don't get it. (laughs) Well, you know, we for years heard criticism of guys like Michael Jordan and Derek Jeter and even Tiger Woods because they wouldn't take a political stand on a lot of things. They were asked to a, a number of times, and they dodged it or remained neutral. And then, well, how long ago was it? About a year ago, a year and a half, I guess now, that... Wayne Gretzky made a rather innocuous comment saying something nice about Stephen Harper, and for several weeks he was just tarred and feathered. <laughs> and it, you realize if you're an athlete, there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot of an upside to taking a position. No, and I think, you know, I mean, that's why Muhammad Ali is, you know, so revered was that, uh, I mean, he, he took a position and he paid a price for it. He paid a heavy price for it. But he, uh, you know, he did it. And, you know, I mean, again, uh, you know, he didn't do it in the ring. He didn't do it, you know, after winning the world championship. Uh, or, you know, he, he did it when the time was right, and I think that's really what it's all about. Now, I didn't realize, I, I was, uh, I had gotten home from a vacation and caught a cold on the airline coming home because those things are uh, self-enclosed flying Petri dishes. Um, and so I was flat on my back yesterday, and I didn't realize that if I had turned to Fox feed, I would have got the American commercials rather than on CTV where I got the endless same commercials over and over for various TV shows they would be showing in the weeks to come. But the American commercials, as I went back and watched on YouTube today, many of them did exactly what Lady Gaga didn't. They were overtly or at least strongly enough political 
that you got the point of what they were trying to do. And I go back to my same point. Now, this is different because they're commercials, I suppose, but are they not running the same risk of alienating part of their audience, even though they may feel strongly about that, that you're, as a commercial, you're trying to buy people's loyalty and you may be turning them off as quickly as you're turning them on. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's their business. I mean, they're paying an outrageous amount of money for those commercials and if they want to to make a statement then then feel free. And but as you say, they're going to they can pay a price and my understanding as as I I just find this incredible and it says so much about the United States and the political climate right uh, there right now is that Anheuser-Busch which ran a commercial that basically said we were a company founded by two German immigrants and they came to this country and people threw rocks at them, but they persevered, and here we are. And apparently there are moves in several southern states to boycott Anheuser-Busch products. Uh, you know, I, I just find that unbelievable. Uh, to me, it's uh, hats off to Anheuser-Busch for, for doing that and at least running the risk. Now, when you spend that kind of money, obviously you're doing it to sell more beer, not less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So you you wonder exactly what was the point, but but I applaud that. I mean, I think uh, you know that that message. I mean, I, it's hard to believe that somebody would boycott a company because they said immigration's a good thing. Here's where it gets really interesting, though. Now, because moving forward a little bit, you will remember. I know you remember this. About, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago when the Boston Bruins, maybe it's not that long ago, won the Stanley Cup, Tim Thomas refused to go to the White House because he didn't agree with Obama's policies. And he was absolutely shredded in the media for being a wingnut and a right-wing fanatic and a crazy guy and all the rest of the stuff. And he was basically run out of Boston after that. I mean, he was persona non grata because he refused to go to the White House. And the big argument against him was that when you go to the White House, you are, it, you're going there for the office of the president, not for the president himself. You don't have to agree politically. You're respecting the office that he holds. Well, pa- Patriots tight end Martellus Bennett already said after the game last night, he's not going. And he says there's a bunch of other Patriots that won't be going to the White House to meet with Donald Trump. Will they get the same flack? Well, they will from certain quarters, Fox News, for example, and the odious Breitbart.com, but no, they won't, they, because most, the majority of, of the media is more on the other side. But, you know, I, I sort of feel the same way about that. I mean, if they, they want to go ahead and do that, fine. You know, it's it's their right, right? It's a free country, uh, First Amendment, all that stuff. Um, you know, go ahead, knock yourself out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's uh, there. Is, there is a bit of a double standard there. That's for sure. It, it does su- suggest to me, anyway, that um, the media runs a risk in these times of looking very hypocritical and very sanctimonious if they don't offer some of the same criticisms. They sort of betray their biases in a very strong way if they don't make some of the same arguments. And listen, it's the office, not the man. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's unfortunate, that that, but that's the way the uh, the media south of the border has has gone. And I guess the the way the population has gone. You're either you're either on one side or you're on the other, and nobody wants to be able to just be able to sort of credit credit the other side or point out the sins on their own side. Uh, there was an incident a couple of days ago where some kid, little kid on a bus uh, wearing a Make America Great uh, hat was, uh, you know, bullied by uh, by others. And, of course, the, the Fox News types made this major news, 
the other side basically ignored it. And that's that's wrong on both sides. It, it really does suggest, though, that with the the way, and going back to Lady Gaga and the, and the politicians and the athletes, it, it would seem to me, Chris, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me for a while anyway, if I'm a professional athlete, it is probably a much better decision to stay silent in the whole political thing until this thing cools down a bit, because right now it seems like it's a no-win situation if you wade into this. Well, I mean, I think in this climate, if I were a professional athlete, I might be inclined to, to hide my feelings. On the other hand, if I felt strongly enough about them, you know, I, I probably I probably take the risk. But but the way you know things are breaking down, you're, you're probably going to turn off half the population. Exactly. No which stand you No, take. exactly. I mean, Colin Kaepernick did that, and half the population thinks he's an idiot for doing it, and half the population thinks he's a hero. Yeah, and and, none, and neither side is ever going to change their minds. No. No, and, and those are half the population now that will never buy a shirt, will never support yeah. the team, probably won't watch that team play. It's To me, it seems like, I I wonder if even teams are going to start telling guys. I mean, I know they can't publicly because it's freedom of speech, but might say, guys, please. I mean, unless you're really, really passionate about this, keep your mouth shut because it's more harm than good. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, again, when when the forum, I think when, you, when the, the forum's appropriate, I, I, I have no problem with people expressing their opinions. We will see where this thing goes. I, uh, but I, I'm, I'm glad because, Chris, honestly, I, I would rather watch a halftime show, whether the politics is to my liking or against my liking. I would rather have that time and that game entirely, quite frankly, as an escape from all the stuff. If I watch sports, I want to have an escape for a few hours, and it's not real life. Sure, exactly. And, and on top of that, what, what is a singer or an actor, what, what, what gives them the authority to sway the population on their, their own political feelings? I mean, sequins. <laughs> Lots of sequins. If you have enough sequins, you're allowed to say whatever you want. Or if you have enough money, yeah. Well, there's that too. Uh, Chris Zelkovich, Yahoo Sports. Always appreciate the time, Chris. Thanks for okay. doing this. It's been a pleasure, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.